The reading today comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Winnie, thank you very much. It's tempting. It's tempting on a hot day. Resist. It's very cold at the moment. This thing. I'm not, that's what I'm talking about. The, uh, and what on earth I'm talking about. Should we pray? Our loving Father, here is a, a wonderful, wonderful description of the status and identity that you've given to Christians. So Father, we pray we'd understand these truths rightly written in your word. We pray your spirit would convince us deep within our hearts so that we are those who live out, represent you well to the praise of your glory. Amen. Now, I don't know how you would uh, go about describing yourself in five words, if that was the challenge presented to you. Five words. It depends. In the context, you could go for uh, the obvious, the sort of police description. Tall, black, young, English woman, or uh, uh, middle-aged, white, short, American man. I mean, you give it the sort of, the sort of, it sounds like a, a police description. That's of some use to you. But more interesting, of course, is character. We had to do this fairly recently. Kerry and I, as part of an application process, uh, had to describe both of our parents using five words. Character. Had to describe their character in five words. It's quite an interesting exercise, actually. Um, now I'm going to lose you all as you do this. Uh, but um, just five words. And actually, you can do you can do quite a good job in five words describing an individual's character. I mean, as we we did them and then showed them, it was very obvious which were Kerry's mum and which were her dad. Very obvious and vice versa. It's quite interesting. Five words. You might want to try it for yourself. You could describe your spouse in five words, her, her or his character, and then share it afterwards and see how that goes. Um, but five words, it's, it's quite interesting exercise to do such a thing. Here in uh, two, uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, there's a lot of words, but essentially five words, we'll get to them uh, later on, in verses 9 and 10, five words used to describe the Christian. God gives us five words, I know more than that, but try and uh, limit it down. 
uh, verse 9. The Christian is chosen, royal, holy. I go for owned as belonging to him. And here's the weak one. Uh, you've received mercy. I don't know how you do that in a word. You're mercied. Is that, I mean, that's a nonsense word, but you can run with it. The Christian is chosen, royal, holy, owned, mercied. It's an interesting list that he goes for. And really here in this section of the letter of 1 Peter, uh, the author wants to drive those in. If you're a Christian here today, that is your identity. I mean, you can five words to describe what you look like physically, five words to describe your character. But these five words, Peter really wants to drive in. This is your identity. And if you get this into your heads and your hearts, this will shape you. And he wants this, this is, it's a crucial part of the letter because he wants to drive this identity into us. And then the rest of the letter is going to apply that to how we live in relation to the state, how we live in our marriages, how we live in our workplaces. But but before that, in order to do this rightly, to live rightly, you need to get this identity clear. Chosen, royal, holy, owned by God, mercied. You need to get that right in, in order to live rightly. So it wants us everything practical that comes in the second half of the letter is flowing from this description, this identity of the Christian. So we've been a few weeks now looking at this, uh, this letter of 1 Peter. We say it's a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the first century to keep going. They may have felt like aliens and strangers in this world that not, didn't quite fit. And that, is, in a sense, is entirely appropriate because for the Christian, this world is not their home. They're going to their home and they're just passing through this world as an alien or a stranger. And so in chapter 1, there was a big reminder, Christians, you are unbelievably privileged. The hope you have to look forward to is extraordinary in chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, he's saying, but the benefits you have now, they're also very wonderful. You are enormously privileged if you're a Christian now. So don't throw away benefits. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, do, do understand these benefits because they're but too wonderful to pass up, really. It's a very, very striking picture he's going to give us. In one sense, there are, there are two main pictures here. They, they come both in verse verse 5. And we'll get to it. You also, like living stones, are being built into what? There are two things here, two big pictures. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Those are the two main ideas. We'll unpack the second one in a bit more detail. But essentially, Peter says you're a new house for God. You have a new identity as priests, and therefore you have a new purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices. So he introduces those in verses 4 and 5, and then he unpacks them in uh, the other verses to come. So really 6 to 8, he goes for the first one about being a house, and then 9 and 10, the second one, being a priesthood. Okay, So let's break it down in this way. The Christian then, a new house for God, a new identity as priests, and a new purpose of sacrifice. Very privileged people indeed. Let's look at it. Verses 4 and 5 then. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. I don't know what you make of that metaphor. You're being built into a house. 
I think the most exciting thing about it is if, as a description of the Christian is, God is doing it. God makes us a fit dwelling place for himself. Just break it down. Three little things here then. God is the builder, God is the inhabitant, and God is the protection. God is the builder. This is enormously encouraging if you're a Christian. (laughs) It is God's work to change you, build you. You, like living stones, are being built by God into a house for him to live in. He is at work. He's the builder. That's very encouraging. Because if we're the builder, we may have a little bit of, well, we may have doubts about how successful the project's going to be. Now, some of you may be wonderful at DIY and uh, it's a, you know, bank holiday weekend is coming and hurrah, that's an opportunity to go to B&Q and make something uh, with your purchases. You may get very excited. I'm not a great builder. Uh, the um, A number of, two decades ago, I had to go and build a school. Part of a sort of gap year thing, I went off to Nicaragua and uh, built a school on this remote island. I remember early early stages of this. We had a project manager, Arsenio, and then there were ten of us idiots about the same age, twenty something, building a school. And uh, the first, we were taught how to mix cement. Learned how to do that for the first time from scratch. There was no mixer; couldn't just throw it in a machine. It was odd. Um, but I remember the first time I built a wall. So you start early, about six a.m. because no, use the natural light. And, you know, by the end of the day, I'd built a significant wall. The foundations were laid, and there was a significant wall about head height. And I looked at this wall and thought, that's a good wall. It's not, it's not wonky. It's, you know, it's a good wall. And, uh, you know, Arsenio that, that came along and just simply said, no bueno. And, uh, no good. And gave it a, just a nudge with one finger, and the whole wall went, mm. and it collapsed. And that was a day's work. And um, if you have an extension that you want to do in your own house, leave me out of it. I'm no good. I'm no good as a builder. Now, spiritually, if building was left to us, no buenos, but no good. We make mistakes. God is at work. God is building the Christian. He is the one who opens our eyes so you become a Christian. He is the one who grows you, shapes you. God is at work. He is the builder. It's wonderful news. Christianity is not a self-help course. We don't come along and gather to get the next of our ten steps and we're just going to do it all ourselves. Fundamentally, the Christian gospel is a God-help course. Not a course, it's a God-help person. He builds. God is the builder. He's the builder. Uh, Second little thing, God is the inhabitant. He's the inhabitant of the house. So it is for him, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, chosen by God, precious to him, you also being built to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering acceptable sacrifices to God. God is the inhabitant. Now the background to building a house for God is, well, it's an Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, God tells his people to build houses for him, often. So the first one is the tabernacle. So in the book of Exodus, uh, God takes his people out of slavery in Egypt. They're on the way to the promised land. 25 chapters or 24 chapters of action. 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, a description. It's a building manual. It's like a big 
Ikea manual, here's what you do, and you put the screw here, and don't lose this part behind. Fifteen chapters, just of what you're to build. And essentially what the, the tabernacle is, it's a palace. So there's a big courtyard, and then there's a, a big tent in the middle of it, but it's incredibly elaborate, expensive fabrics, everything inside is gold, because it's a palace. And inside the tent, the holy place, is the most holy place. That's the throne room. And there is God's throne, made out of gold. And no one's allowed in there except the high priest one day. One man is allowed in on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And the point of all this is, God is a king, but to have him dwell amongst you is quite hard. So you need to get it right, and you can't just walk in and out. So they build the tabernacle, 15 chapters of description, and then finally the book of Exodus, God comes and lives with them. Hurrah! Uh, Solomon builds a bigger house for God. He builds the temple. It takes years, it's on a much larger scale in Jerusalem, but 1 Kings 8, finally, God comes and dwells in this house that's been built for him, a palace. And here, Peter is saying, God is dwelling amongst you. Now, how are you obviously encouraging? So Peter is writing to Christians in the first century in their very small little house churches. Maybe a dozen, maybe 30, we don't know the details, but these small little house churches. Some of them would have been converted from a Jewish background. And they may think to themselves, well, the only way to meet with God is to go to Jerusalem and the temple that's there. Well, that would get destroyed a few years after this letter. And Peter's saying, no, look, you, your, your unimpressive little group, God dwells amongst you. And this unimpressive, no, very illustrious, but unimpressive little group that we are here today, God dwells amongst you, particularly intensely when Christians gather together. So do you know where you are? We put it that way. It was a nice day. It's Sunday, so you go to church because that's what we do on a Sunday. But do you know where you are? Because we gathered here, God dwells amongst us. That is extraordinary that the living God would do such a thing. I read an interview with them. Um, uh, Arsene Wenger, uh, manager of Arsenal Football Club for you know, a good number of years now, uh, fairly recently. He was talking about when he first arrived at the club, there was a chap there called Bert Owen, who was a fairly legendary character in the club. He was an old physio, and uh, he'd fought in the Second World War, and was greatly revered, always turned up the smartest man in the club, polished his shoes every day to do his job as a physio, sort of old-school guy, loved his Arsenal Football Club, had worked there since the war, all the way up until the 90s. Uh, Bert Owen was a real institution in the club uh, and he had no respect really no great respect for these players on their million pound salaries a year and Arsene Wenger said he was very struck because Bert Owen, whenever anyone arrived at the club he said the same thing to him and on a regular basis to all these players earning their 100,000 or whatever a week he would say to them this remember who you are remember where you are remember who you represent. You are nothing but another ship passing through the night. You are not special. This place is special. And no doubt, these French multimillionaires thought, who is this strange man <laughs> um, with his polished shoes and his tie as a physio? Um, but what he was saying to them there was, 
okay, you're, you're great, you're impressive. It's not about you. It's about the club. It's not about you, but do you know who you are? You're a representative of this institution, which will outlast you. It's been here for years before you were born. It'll outlast you for, for years when you're dead. You represent this club now. That is what makes you special. That is what defines you. Do you know who you are and where you are? And Peter is saying to the Christians, do you know who you are and where you are? Oh, you, you matter to God, but actually you're just passing through. You're a ship through the night. You're not very special. To be honest with you, when we're in the year, whatever, uh, 42,090 in heaven, no one's really going to be making a study of your life in detail. You will not be the center of eternity. You're just passing through. But do you know who you are now? You represent the living God. Do you know who you are and where you are? God dwells amongst you. That's very special, he says. God is the builder. God is the inhabitant. God protects the house. I think that's, in one sense, the main point here. Just follow through the logic with me. Um, as you come to verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus Christ, rejected but chosen by God. You also are like him. You become living stones. Rejected by people, perhaps, if you're a Christian, but chosen by God. And then when you get into these quotes, these quotes are emphasizing security. So verse 6, in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is so secure, you'll never be put to shame. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine never being embarrassed again in your life? That would be fabulous. You're maybe never being ashamed. Peter's saying if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, in a, in a significant sense, you'll never be ashamed because he guarantees you've made a good decision. He guarantees you've done the right thing. So, did Jesus Christ die in history and rise again in history? Yes. Yes, and if you're a living stone like him, that'll happen to you. You won't be put to shame. That'll be a good, putting your trust in him is a good decision. He's died and risen, you'll die and rise. It's an excellent decision. Will Jesus Christ return and vindicate his people? Yes. Yes, so putting your faith in him is a very good decision. Don't change that. Do it if you've never done it. But, he says, some won't want to do that. So, verse 8, there'll be some who don't want to give up control of their lives and submit to Jesus. And so, verse 8, they stumble over him. So, Jesus is also a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that causes them to, to fall. And so Peter warns us, don't be surprised that lots of people don't come to Jesus Christ and follow him as Lord and Saviour. The Old Testament predicted that that would be the case. Oh look, it's their decision. It's a moral decision to reject Jesus Christ. But God always said that that would happen, that lots of people would. Don't be surprised by that. Jesus is divisive. He's a rock or he's a cornerstone. And you either build your life upon him, set your course according to him, or he'll, well, you'll stumble over him. He is divisive. You'll either find him a wonderful saviour or an irritating hindrance to how you want to live. But it's always the case. But he says, look, if you're a Christian, 
you'll, oh look, you'll be teased in this life, perhaps. You'll be mocked in this life, perhaps, for being a Christian. And if you're not, you need to know that that happens. Christians take a bit of flack. But in the most significant, ultimate sense, it's the best decision you'll ever make in your life to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. You'd never be put to shame for that decision. It's a brilliant decision. God is at work building you. Obvious thing to do is to stick with him. Christians are a new house for God. And then secondly, that Christians have a new identity as priests. Verse 9, you are chosen, royal, holy, owned, mercied. You've received mercy. Let's just run through those. Okay, Peter says, can I just drum into you who you are? Just so that is shaping your identity. So important. So you're chosen. Verse 9, you are a chosen people. Now all these phrases, they're, they're picking up on Old Testament language used of Israel and applied now to Christians. You're chosen. Everyone wants to be chosen. That's a very normal human instinct within us. Because we love to be loved. So it doesn't matter if you're the eight-year-old boy who wants to be chosen for the football team. Or the whatever 18-year-old who wants to be chosen for that particular university. Or the whatever the 50-year-old who wants to be chosen for that particular job that looks quite attractive. We all want to be chosen. That's entirely normal and natural to us. And to be rejected, that'll have an impact. We're chosen and that shapes us. Because chosen by God. I uh, read an interview this week with um, Tim Minchin. I don't know if you come across him. He's a comedian and uh, a singer. So Lloyd Webber has him um, lined up to play the lead in Jesus Christ Superstar when it opens next year. He's a multi-talented guy, talented guy, funny man. But I read an interview with him, and he was talking about why he never reads reviews. He will not read a review of his work, particularly as a stand-up comedian. He put it this way. Imagine you had to get up. Imagine, dear reader, because it's a put it this way. Imagine, dear reader, you had to get get up every night on stage and do a whole load of jokes that you don't find funny anymore. You have to sing a whole lot of songs that you don't like the tunes of anymore. Night after night, and someone in a national newspaper, your newspaper, the one you read, the one you like, the paper that you respect. Someone makes specific criticisms of specific bits of the show. And they don't say, well, that bit of the show could do with a bit of work. But they say that because of that failing, you don't deserve to be on stage and have a career as a comedian. Now, how do you get up having read that the following night and you get to the specific bit of the show, the specific gag they've hated? How do you feel when you get to that part? You feel like a loser. You get up on stage and that guy's words are just ringing in your head and it's impossible to carry on. Of course, you guess that makes sense, doesn't it? We know that. To be rejected is miserable. To be chosen. What if your reviewer was God? What if, thought experiment, this doesn't happen, what if God said to Tim Minchin, you are a funny man. You are the funniest stand-up around today. I love your gags. They have me reeling with the angels. We have a good old chuckle whenever we see you. Now, 
How do you then feel if you're Tim Minchin? You go out on stage and you think, well, look, there's the bloke from whatever it is, The Observer, and he hates me, but God thinks I'm funny. And his verdict is more significant. I'll get funny points in heaven. And, you know, you, I don't care what you know, it doesn't work like that. The, um, but that, that verdict matters to you, doesn't it? We can't live without the verdict of people upon us. When God says, yes, I have chosen you because of your abilities, so if they go, don't worry about it. I have just decided before the beginning of time, I've chosen you, you're mine. That has an impact. Chosen. Christians are a chosen people. Royal is the second. A royal priesthood. Now, the the, the priests of the Old Testament, that is both a privilege and a responsibility, a great privilege to be a priest. You can go into the temple which Joe Average couldn't do. But you have a responsibility as well. Your responsibility is to represent. You represent God to the people and people to God. You're representative in that sense. So to be a priest is a privilege, but a responsibility. Just so for the Christian. A great privilege and responsibility as we represent God to people. One of the many uh, programs on about the Queen at the moment um, had a nice anecdote from her childhood. It was from uh, uh, one of the chaplains. So one of the king's chaplains during the Second World War. Uh, um, so uh, the Queen Mother, the, the uh, deceased Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, um, was uh, sending her children, the two young girls, Elizabeth and Margaret, off to a party. And the chaplain observed, they're off to a party, the girls, <laughs> uh, giggling away, and um, very exciting. And um, the Queen Mum was putting them in the car and the chaplain thought to himself, well, I wonder what she's going to say to them as she sends them on her way. So he sort of lengthened his stride uh, just to listen in. And uh, just before she slammed the door and off they drove, she said, remember, royal children, royal manners. And off they went. And he thought that was lovely and recited this with the camera. Uh, and of course, God is saying that to the Christian. You're, you're a royal priesthood. There is both privilege and responsibility. Royal people. Royal manners, behave appropriately. Chosen, royal, holy. A holy nation. Not a physical nation, but a holy group of people scattered throughout the world. Holy, we said before, just means set apart for God. Unique for him. Designed for his purpose. So next week, as the flotilla of however many ships uh, goes down the Thames, there is one barge which is holy for the Queen. It's for her and Philip and uh, um, uh, her immediate descendants, isn't it? So Charles and William and their wives are going to be there. Okay, But it's set apart for them. You and I can't go on it. Other members of the family can't go on it. Courtiers can't go on it. It is holy for the Queen. And Peter here is saying, Christians are holy for the Lord, for him. Set apart for him, to serve him. Because we represent him. God is a holy God. We're to show the world that God is a holy God. We're to represent him in a holy way. So Christians carry out their lives as whatever it is, surveyors, bankers in retail, as a, in a manner which is pleasing to the Lord, holy to him. Chosen, royal, holy, owned. That is, we belong to God, expressed two times, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, you are a people belonging to God. Verse 10, you are the people of God. The Lord loves his people and is, well, he's possessive about them. 
No one says that. To be owned by someone doesn't sound enormously appealing. We probably think of slavery, but if you're owned by someone who loves you and invests in you, that's a very wonderful thing. I remember a few years ago going on holiday with another family to France. So flew, long journey, etc., etc. And we arrived in where we were staying in France and their, their daughter their three-year-old daughter, her most treasured possession was Bunny. But Bunny had been left in London. And there was tears beyond anything you've ever seen. Just distraught. Bunny had been left behind and the world would end. Because Bunny was her most treasured possession. Now, remarkably, on a little trip to the, in this, where, this town where we were staying, there was a toy shop, and the toy shop sold precisely the same bunny. Unbelievable. Praise the Lord. What a remarkable providence. Hurrah. Look. Bunny has arrived. She came on a different flight, and she's now joined us. Oh, mm. Not bunny. Not look in that way that they know because she had invested a huge amount of love and saliva and other things into Bunny. So she knew the Bunny that was hers and nothing else would do because she had invested that Bunny with love. Now Bunny, Bunny was five euros ninety nine or whatever it was. Bunny was not very expensive. Bunny intrinsically was worth very little. But to that little girl who had invested love in her treasured possession, it was everything. And God says, I have invested in you. You may inherently be worth a very little, but I have invested the blood of my son. I've died in him for you. You are my treasured possession. I've invested love into you. Treasured or owned by God. Chosen. Royal, owned, mercied is the last thing. I'm afraid I could do no better than that. You are recipients of mercy. You're mercied. The Christian is one who knows that they were in trouble. Guilty of rejecting God as a good God, rejecting him as the creator, and therefore guilty before him, therefore deserving judgment before him. But he has shown us mercy in his son, Jesus Christ. They deserve it, but he has bestowed mercy upon us. Now Peter says, if you're a Christian, you're chosen, and that's wonderful. You're royal. That's great dignity, but you have a privilege, you have responsibility there as well. You're holy. You're set apart for him. You're owned or treasured, maybe better. You're mercied. Now those things need to shape you, define you. Is that many of them have overlapping pictures, don't they? We, we represent him. And so the watching world looks at how Christians behave and determines their view of God by his people. That's a normal thing. That's why Bert Evans could say, remember who you are, remember who you represent. It's why the Queen would say, royal children, royal manners, if you behave abominably, how does it reflect upon me? I'm a bad mother, a bad monarch. See, how we 
live for him, well, that'll impact upon how people view him. That's our identity. It needs to shape us. Oh, no, before we finish that, that point, all these yous, they're plural. You are, verse 5. You are, verse 7. You are, verse 9. They're all plurals. It's a corporate image. And, of course, it's very hard to do this on our own. Peter's pointing out, we need the encouragement of one another to do this. We need to remind one another. You're, a, you're chosen by God. You, you represent God. You are treasured by God. We, we need, because so many other things will compete to shape our identity. Our, our neighbours, our families, uh, the people we work with, they'll, they'll compete to shape what we have as priorities and shape our identities. And Peter's saying, look, these things... These truths are who you fundamentally are now as a Christian. Now, if you get those deep into your mind, into your heart, then you'll live. I tell you what, all these, in, all these commands I'm going to give you in the second half of the letter, they're easy. Oh, look, if you, if you know who you are, to live as a Christian is easy. You've got to get these things in. So briefly, I mean, the main application is to come in the uh, following weeks. But briefly, we have a new purpose of sacrifice. So again, it says in verse 5, the, the priests are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, Old Testament picture, the priest would go into the temple and offer sacrifices uh, for the sins of the people. No, we don't do that. Jesus Christ has done that. He's done that once for all. There's no sacrifice for sins anymore. But in the New Testament, everyone is a priest who offers sacrifices. What are the sacrifices? There are lots of them. So Romans 12 would say, offer your bodies a sacrifice, verse 1. Philippians 4.18, offer your money as a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verse 16, give your time to other believers as a spiritual sacrifice. Give of yourself. But here the two that are highlighted are praises and distinctiveness. So verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that's our purpose, to offer God praises. Now, let me give you the two, two senses of this, then we'll finish. The first sense of this is just to sing or to speak well. So the word that's used for praises here, it's an unusual word, not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but it's used in the throughout the Psalms as... Of, um, of singing. So we're to sing. God loves to hear us praise him, to tell him how good he is. Everyone has their own temperament. Some are natural heart on sleeve gushes and find it, it sort of exuberant praise of God very easy. Some of us are English and don't. Oh, no, that's unfair, isn't it? Completely unfair. But some are more restrained and uh, we don't express ourselves. But within our own natural temperament, to praise God. You don't have to sing to praise him, which is a great encouragement for the tone deaf amongst some. You don't have to sing. But the company of a Christian who is always very positive about God and what God is doing is refreshing. Be around someone who says, oh, God, you know, God's been really kind to me recently. You know, we've been going through a rough time, but he's sustained us. That's really encouraging. That's praising God. And there's nothing the world needs to hear as much as 
that God is good. So we declare his praises just in an obvious sense. We sing and speak. So that's one way. But the other way, I think the purpose of, of the other spiritual sacrifices which really comes out here is in the distinctiveness. So all these, ver- all these um, descriptions, adjectives in verse 9 of being chosen, holy, belonging to him, they all speak really of Christians living distinctively. Living in a way which honours God, that the world will look upon us and say, that's interesting, you live differently. Tell me about your God. That's the other obvious sense here of spiritual sacrifices. And that can make an enormous difference. I read an interview a couple of weeks ago with uh, A.N. Wilson, who uh, in my lifetime, no, I wouldn't know who he is, but in my lifetime has been one of the most vocal, critical atheists denouncing the Christian faith. He's a prolific writer, has written plenty on how Jesus contradicts Paul, how the New Testament can't fit together, how it's all a load of nonsense. In the year 2000, he wrote God's Funeral, which was a bestseller, uh, describing how in the UK, everyone in, within 50 years, no one will be a Christian. So a, a, a prominent, vocal, intelligent, erudite atheist who's for 40-odd years of his life been massively critical of the Christian faith. In 2009, he became a Christian. So he renounced his atheism and is now calling himself a Christian. And I read an interview a few weeks ago when he explained why. And there are a whole number of reasons he gave for why he'd become a Christian. But the most significant that he raised up was that he was writing a book on the Wagner family. Therefore, doing lots of historical research uh, into that family and uh, therefore, as part of that, into the Nazi regime uh, in Germany in the middle of last century. And he said he he realised in doing that research that the only people who offered significant resistance to that regime were Christians. Both in their intellectual arguments against the regime, which were robust, but more significantly in their blood, because they would die for what they believed. And he said in particular of uh, the, uh, the reading of the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his Christian ethics, which he found very impressive intellectually. But he said much more than that. Let me quote. I was struck in particular by Bonhoeffer's serenity before he was hanged. He was a man in love and due to be married. He had everything to look forward to in this life. But he was willing to die for what he believed in a manner of utter serenity. And he said, I looked upon that and I I searched around in vain for the atheists who stood up and there were none. And I realized there's something in this. There's a power that these people had that I don't see amongst any other people. There's a willingness to live distinctively that I don't see when I look around my friends. And so he rejected his atheism and he's calling himself a Christian. So as we progress through this letter of 1 Peter, that's a crucial part of what he's going to say. Christians, you are set apart for God. You are chosen. You are royal. You are holy. You are owned by him. You've been mercied 
by him. If those things shape you, you can live in a way which is supernatural. And the watching world needs to see that. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this wonderful description of the, the privileges that the Christian has, that you've chosen us and all these others. We pray that they would deeply, deeply determine how we think of ourselves and our purpose in this world, that our identity will be shaped by who we now are because we're in Jesus Christ. And in living in such a way, would we offer you praises? Would we live distinctively for the honour of your name? And so others would honour you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.